Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Or was it the Discovery? Voyager? How about the Defiant? Now, if you know your Star Trek, the names of these ships will probably be ringing a few bells. And even if you're not a so-called Trekkie, you'll probably know the names like Captain James T. Kirk, or how about Captain Jean-Luc Picard? Star Trek is one of the largest sci-fi franchises in pop culture history. Created by Gene Roddenberry, the series debuted on American television screens in 1966, starring a very young William Shatner as Captain Kirk, along with his Vulcan commander, Spock, played by Leonard Nimoy. Since that original series, which only lasted three short seasons, the Star Trek universe has grown exponentially. In all, there have been seven different Star Trek TV series, producing over 750 episodes. There have been also at least 13 different feature films, not to mention dozens of games, books, and graphic novels. Star Trek has become iconic in our collective understanding and imagining of what the future could hold for us. Roddenberry's vision gave us an optimistic future, one only a few hundred years away, taking place roughly in the 23rd century. This was a future where humans had put aside their differences, becoming technologically advanced enough to travel among the stars, visiting new planets and peoples, and living peacefully under the interstellar government known as the Federation. And by the 2260s, at least according to Star Trek, Earth had figured out solutions to problems like climate change and resource scarcity. Pollution, hunger, disease, these were things of the past. By joining together with other species from throughout the galaxy, humans peacefully could explore new life and new civilizations, boldly going where no one had gone before. But when you're out there traveling the stars, you do still have to think about food. How do you feed a crew when you're light years from the nearest grocery store? Star Trek's imagined future isn't just about fancy phasers, flip phones, and transporters. It also digs into how humans will feed themselves in the future. What different cuisines will be available across the galaxy? What is food going to be like when technology can give us all the nutrients and vitamins we need with the touch of a button? And it's these questions we'll be looking at on today's episode. You're listening to The Feast, after all, where great meals make history. Or, in this case at least, future history. I'm Laura Carlson, your host. Now, we've been away for a little while, but we've been off traveling and researching preparing a whole new season of delicious past, present, and future meals for you to enjoy. And for this season, season three, we're doing things a bit differently. This time, we're speeding up the courses, so to speak. We'll be releasing 10 episodes, one per week. And as usual, we'll be traveling the length and breadth of time and space to explore great food. Kicking off, of course, with the history of the future of food. At least, as imagined by the makers of Star Trek. Now, the future of food has an interesting history. As folks have thought about what future generations of humans will enjoy as they sit down to dinner 100, 200, even 1,000 years from now, lots of different questions come up. How will technology change the way we eat? Will we enjoy four-course meals in tiny test tubes or pills, like some sort of 24th century version of Willy Wonka? How will our future environment affect our eating? Will a plant-based diet be the way of the future? Or will we be feasting on protein-rich insects and lab-grown meat? Will humans be dining on Martian culinary specialities? Will the new food trend of 2240 be grown on a planet outside our own solar system. Every generation has a different vision of humanity's collective future, and food often plays 
no small part in that. And so it's been with Star Trek. Today, we're doing a deep dive on the future of food as seen in the Star Trek universe. From how the 1960s envisioned what Kirk and Spock would be dining on in the 23rd century, but also how, over the last 50 years, our visions of the future of food have changed. And how those changes have been reflected in this iconic sci-fi world. Whether it's Captain Jean-Luc Picard's preference for tea, Earl Grey, hot, manifested instantly for him by technology, or a collection of futuristic interstellar food trucks collected and assembled for your dining pleasure on the promenade of Deep Space Nine. Today, we have two experts on Star Trek to chat about the future of food with us. Glenn McDorman and Valerie Hoagland, hosts of the beloved Lower Decks podcast, where they discuss the latest episodes of Star Trek Discovery. We'll explore how food has played an increasing role on Trek, starting with the original series in the 1960s, going all the way to the current season of Discovery, airing now. And if you know your Star Trek, you'll know we can't talk about its futuristic cuisine without also talking about its futuristic drinks, from Romulan ale to Klingon blood wine. Thanks to Glenn and Valerie's love and expert knowledge of cocktails, we'll provide the makings for your very own Star Trek libations, including a boozy homage to Picard's love of Earl Grey tea, not to mention how to make your own bright blue Romulan ale at home. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I have been watching Star Trek really for as long as I can remember. It was a big part of my relationship, my childhood relationship with my father. And then when uh, the next generation was on the air, this was a massive part of my experience of of early adolescence. This was the place that I could go to to feel like uh, I had things in common with other nerds out in space. Uh, and it was just a huge part of my development as uh, someone interested in intellectual things and going on and uh, pursuing a career in academia. And I'm Valerie Hoagland, Glenn's co-host over on Lower Decks. I also run a whimsical Instagram purely for myself called Plants in Star Trek, where I take screenshots of plants in Star Trek and add contemporary captions. Uh, I came to Trek later in life than Glenn did, but I find it to be a wonderful, optimistic presence to be able to think about a utopian future instead of a dystopian present. So I enjoy it very much. I'm perhaps very similar in terms of how I came to Trek. Next Generation was my first Trek. And it was only when I started really getting into food history and almost the history of the future of food, thinking about how our food systems or how our relationship to food will change over the next 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. Um, I started going back to Star Trek and, you know, anything from the original series to, I was going to say Voyager, but then now we kind of have to double back to Enterprise and Discovery. You know, in some ways, it's not a very food focused show, at least superficially. But food has played quite a role, I think, depending on either the character, or either the series, um, and certainly has popped up in a number of episodes as kind of a core theme. But I was wondering, thinking back on Trek, when perhaps was the first time you either noticed something food related on on Star Trek or kind of were were caught by an episode or something to do with with kind of the food or drink, perhaps, of Star Trek? Yeah, you know, for me, that is a much easier question because I was I went to the first season of TNG. That was also my first Trek. I went in, a, in an odd order, but I started with TNG, as most people do, especially when they come to it later in life. Pretty early on in the first season, Riker makes a comment. Valerie here is talking about William Riker, second in command on the USS Enterprise under Captain... Jean-Luc Picard. That somehow has stuck, and everyone believes it about the Trek world, though almost all other evidence on air contradicts it, which is that in the future, everybody's vegan. It's not exactly what he says. He says, We no longer enslave animals for food purposes. But we have seen humans eat meat. You've seen something as fresh and tasty as meat, but inorganically materialized 
out of patterns used by our transporters. This is when he's having kind of a cross-cultural dialogue with another species on the ship that wants to bring their live animals for for food for themselves. And and as a vegan myself, this really caught my eye that we were creating a future world in the 80s that even thought of this at, at all. And that was one of my first clues that Trek wasn't just some nerdy thing that my dad liked. It was asking us interesting philosophical and moral questions about our own contemporary society and where we see ourselves going. So that was my first kind of big clue into food being interesting and important on Trek. And did you notice this before you actually became a vegan or was this when you had already been a vegan for for some time? Yeah, I was already vegan. I'd been vegan for maybe four or five years at that at that point. This was already something that I had come to my own conclusion about and was still at that time, you didn't hear a lot about five, six years ago now. You didn't hear about veganism much. But it's interesting that, I mean, it was a very early episode. I think it was in season one of Next Generation. Yeah, it's this. I believe it's the sixth episode that for anyone who's interested, the title is The Lonely Among Us. Um, and I think it's the sixth or seventh episode of the first season. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, absolutely in the 80s. And and yet it seems like there was already a kind of nod to that in the original series as well. I had heard this, that there was an element of veganism the original series may have mentioned as well. My guess would be that that is related to food synthesizers. So the fact that a lot of the food eaten on Trek is synthesized or replicated in some way, the comparison to kind of our contemporary world would be like lab-grown meat. And also we have the fact that Spock and his fellow Vulcans are vegetarian. So that comes up in the original series. So that's my immediate guess, but I, I bet can tell us more. That's all right. And uh, maybe I'll just take it back a little bit. Star Trek, the original series actually has a kind of a bizarre relationship with food that's really quite different from what we see in the other series. The way that that Gene Roddenberry is envisioning the future, or at least is envisioning what the future is going to be like if you're on a spaceship far from home, food isn't really a thing that is a, a concern. In fact, the first time that we see food really in the original series, people are actually just eating colorful cubes. They're basically painted blocks of wood or like little colored plastic that they used on screen to be these nutrient blocks that people would would eat. We see them like on a plate. Someone's, you know, cutting into them with like a knife and a fork, but they do not look at all appetizing and they are fake food. They're not they're not something that was actually grown. They're something that's been uh, manufactured through science. And of course, you know, this is the idea of what the future will be like in the 60s, right? That science is going to save us from everything and it's going to replace our dependency on having to grow things out of the ground or consume animals. That doesn't last very long in the original series, though, and I think there are some behind-the-scenes reasons why there was something unappealing about watching people eat that and (laughs) did not play well on TV, so that was done away with fairly quickly. And it's replaced by the idea that the Starship Enterprise is served by a food synthesizer, which is something, again, that is making fake food, but it's making fake food that looks like food and you would actually want to eat, but it is making uh, you know, a chicken or making an onion or just making a hamburger, if that's what you w- would like, or a burrito out of matter that has been discarded on the ship in some way and has been chemically turned into this food. And so none of it is harvested meat or even harvested uh, plant products. It is recycled material that's been discarded on the ship in some way. There's th- almost two kind of justifications for it then. There's the, well, you're you're a million miles in the middle of space. Um, there's not going to be, you know, a cow next door or there's not going to be like the ability to grow plants, certainly to the extent to harvest and feed an entire ship, whether or not that's 100 people or 1,000 people, the bigger ships that you get, versus a, this very specific, almost kind of moral element that Riker is talking about in Next Generation. Um, and I, I'm wondering, do you see that as part of this, you utopia or this futuristic positive image that Roddenberry or perhaps some of the other creators of Star Trek were trying to envision? Or it, does it get kind of counterweighted with this, well, we have to figure out the mechanics and science of how do you feed people in space? I lean more towards that it has a lot to do with Roddenberry's vision. And one thing that's interesting to, when you're thinking about food and Trek in general is that once Roddenberry is no longer involved, 
after he passes, things change quite a bit. You know, he himself was not vegetarian, but he was very concerned with factory farming and the way that we were. He doesn't say that we no longer eat meat. He says we no longer enslave animals for food purposes. And so I think you can parse a difference between exploiting or enslaving animals for meat and eating them if cultivated in in other ways. And so for me, I think it's a lot about the utopic vision that goes into the Star Trek universe that I am extremely drawn to and fond of. My my sense is that then you work, you kind of work backwards from what happens on screen and you justify it with some of the sciencey stuff. But Glenn, I don't know if you have the same opinion. I think Laura's question points to something that's really fascinating and really exciting about Star Trek, which is that it has been on the air for over 50 years at this point. It has the responsibility of or the product of hundreds of different creators over several generations of creativity. And so we can chart through time over these 50 years, the interests that people have, uh, the problems that they're concerned about through the attitudes that each show has about food. And I think it's absolutely right to say that the interest in food for the original series as it's on the air in the 60s, before we have been to the moon is thinking about how people are going to have food on a spaceship. But once we get to the next generation, 20 years have passed. Space is boring now. We don't even cover space launches on TV anymore. It's not something that's exciting for people. We've gotten used to the fact that, yes, this is a thing humans can do. And Roddenberry himself is older. He has changed a little bit and is thinking about the Star Trek universe more in terms of, of social history or soft science fiction rather than hard science fiction. And so he makes this move towards thinking, how how can we use food to show the way that our society will have uh, you know, progressed in, in some way? And food, of course, is it comes in the next generation era, so just Deep Space Nine and, and Voyager as well, comes out of these replicators, which are a step up from the food synthesizers of the original series, which uh, they're, they're more technologically capable, they're uh, more efficient, they use fewer resources, and they can basically just make you anything that you want out of nothing. Tomato soup. There are 14 varieties of tomato soup available from this replicator, with rice, with vegetables, bolian style, with pasta, with plain. Specify hot or chilled. Hot. Hot, plain tomato soup. One of the things that Roddenberry is asking is how would our what would our lives be like if there was no more scarcity uh, of anything that we want? No one has to starve anymore. No one has to be homeless or or do without. They, there's not even a competition for uh, for art and for for entertainment. We can all have everything that we want out of this machine. What changes would that uh, bring about in us? Who would we be if that's the the case? And of course, one of the answers he has is right. We would be largely vegan. We would no longer enslave animals for food because we wouldn't need to. And we would all have the, the capability and maybe even he might think of, say, the luxury of being able to treat animals like people. And that is part of the utopia that he's envisioning here in the 80s. You know, when you mention the imagined future where resource scarcity just isn't a thing anymore, and I think it becomes a creative problem when you're also dealing in a post-money economy when, okay, resource scarcity isn't a problem anymore. We don't have, you know, traditional currency anymore when you don't have to necessarily barter or buy or sell to acquire goods or anything to keep yourself going. But that problem from a writer's perspective, because it removes so much tension, so much drama. So it almost seems that the writers have to almost retroactively go back and create situations that revolve around these things that in theory have been solved or no longer present problems for the future kind of Earth population or whoever it is, um, let's say the folks of the Federation. Right. Not having money, not having any kind of like actual economy, no one needs or wants for any kind of material objects anymore, makes it really hard to tell any kind of murder mystery or any kind of crime show right off the bat. And so that's a real problem for the Star Trek writers. So they do all sorts of things to to, to get around that. But even even imagining this world uh, in which there, there is no scarcity, there are no resource problems, we still find an awful lot of characters who are involved in uh, food production or the, or the, the food industry in, in some way, and for reasons that are not economic, that are not about making a living or not about survival, but that are 
about something else, about a, a love of doing that. So Captain Jean-Luc Picard, the, the protagonist of Star Trek The Next Generation, he his brother runs his family's ancestral vineyard in, in northeastern France, even though there is no need for this. You can just get wine out of the replicator if you want. But it is a point of pride for Captain Picard's brother, Robert, that he manages this vi- this vineyard. And the first time we see this character, he is out in the hot sun tending to a diseased vine. He works all day as a farmer in a society that has no need for that anymore and does that because he loves it. And we see something similar with the father of uh, Captain Sisko, who's the, the protagonist of uh, show Deep Space Nine. His father runs a restaurant called Sisko's in New Orleans back on Earth and not for money. No, there are no paying customers. There are customers. There are people who are our patrons were there to eat gumbo and jambalaya. It's the best restaurant in New Orleans, we're told repeatedly, uh, but not for money. This isn't something he does for profit, but he loves it so much that the first time we're introduced to this restaurant uh, in an episode in which Captain Sisko and his son go go home to visit their father and grandfather, uh, we discover that this character is uh, suffering from some health problems and actually should be taking some time away from the restaurant in order to take care of his heart condition and won't do it because he just loves running the restaurant so much. And so it's interesting to see if, if we think about the next generation using the replicator to ask this question, who would we be and what would we do with our lives if there was no more resource scarcity? Uh, and it turns out that that the answer, at least the, the Star Trek writers find, is that we would still want to cook food for other people. And in, and we would still be obsessed with growing the best grapes and making the best wine possible, but for love of it, not for profit. Yeah. And this gets to something that, you know, it all comes back to, to what Glenn said earlier, which is that so many different hands have touched Trek, right? Like so many different people over such a long period of time are are writing this show. And sometimes we get things said in single episodes that contradict everything else because they serve the plot of that episode. And so we have to like dodge those those instances, so to speak. But one way that I think Trek maintains the tension that uh, you don't get from fighting over resources is through comparisons to other cultures. So Trek often likes to take any other culture and compare humans to it. Usually humans come out on top, but ideally we're, we're looking to see another way of doing things, how we might better ourselves. And food comes into this a lot. So the biggest one, like I mentioned earlier, is that all Vulcans, a very peaceful, peace-loving people, they're all vegetarians. And, you know, especially in Star Trek Enterprise, which, which aired in the early 2000s and takes place before the original series in the Trek timeline, Vulcans are just constantly getting made fun of for being vegetarian because humans aren't yet, you know, vegan or conceiving of themselves as vegetarian. But then even in Deep Space Nine, you you get people who claim to be vegetarians. But often it's in conflict with other cultures that look at food a different way or interact with food in a different way or who are disgusted by the barbaric nature of replicator technology um, or Klingons, for example, who just don't understand why anyone would cook anything ever, that we get kind of some of that tension about food. I can go in so many different directions, but I feel like I can't leave the reference to, um, well, Chateau Picard without also talking about the other invention of the future, which is, of course, Synthahol and Robert's famous disregard for Synthahol. So if maybe um, either one of you maybe just talks about what exactly is Synthahol and how perhaps many folks of the Federation have not fully grasped the, the joys of Synthahol. <laughs> so this ties into your last question really well, Laura, because there are many characters on the show that even with food make comments like, oh, the replicate stuff isn't as good as actual food. And then there are other characters who, you know, say there's not a difference. It's just as fresh and tasty. So this happens with Synthahol as well. I think that there are just uh, some complaints. And it turns out we find out after TNG kind of brings Synthahol to us that we can reprogram the replicator to give us real alcohol if we want, because we just still need that in the future, apparently. And there is, yeah, yeah, this episode Family, which is where we learn about the vineyards and, and where we learn about some of this uh, rage against the presence of, of, of synthahol, which is this just fake alcohol, basically, but it maintains all of all of the taste uh, and, and, and texture, all of the sort of things that you would notice in consuming an alcoholic beverage remain the same, but it has no more intoxicating effects. But almost everyone we meet actually says that they can they can tell the difference. There's a, a great episode in which Scotty, the, the engineer character from the original series, makes an appearance on The Next Generation 
invention. Uh, he's been you know trapped in the transporter for 80 years, so he doesn't know about the invention of synthahol, but he does think it's pretty awesome that they decided to put a bar on a spaceship. So he goes down to the bar and orders a scotch and uh, does a spit take because that is not scotch. He says, I've been drinking scotch for 140 years and that is not scotch. And uh, distraught, distressed at the discovery that anyone would want to consume anything with fake alcohol in it. And Robert Picard uh, feels very much the same way. And in fact, he even, uh, a big part of that episode and when Picard goes home uh, and is actually massively suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder uh, after something uh, extraordinarily awful had happened to him, discusses the actual value of having alcohol in alcoholic beverages. That, in fact, part of the the joy of having a drink after work is the alcohol. It's not just the taste. Is is that there is something about alcohol that, that humans um, are uh, attracted to, that it serves these cathartic social functions and such. And for Robert Picard, who's running his vineyard, this is all wrapped up in what he sees as kind of the, the dark side of the federal Federation, where it is this utopia in which no one wants for anything, but it is also this society that exercises in some ways sort of more and more uh, control over people's lives. It, it is fascinating about drinks were actually the first things I started noticing as consumable items on Star Trek because the real hangout spot on the Enterprise is essentially a bar. I mean, you get the impression that they can get food and they can get, you know, full meals there. But it seems like everyone is going predominantly to get a drink, hopefully from Guinan, but but really just just to be at the, the watering hole that is the Enterprise. And almost, if I think back, the first things that I learned about other cultures or other, say, non-human species food or drink products were their alcohol and that everyone's always hoarding some version of either Romulan ale or Saurian brandy or blood wine, um, and that these were still prized possessions of the crew of whether it was the Enterprise or another ship. But those seem to be, even from the original series, already acknowledged as, of course, we have a, the finest selection, not only of scotch, but of Romulan ale as well. Yeah, even while the original series is uh, not all that concerned about food and is just showing us people eating these colored cubes, that is not going to fly for Gene Roddenberry's vision of alcohol in space. People have booze with them on the starship. In fact, even in the the very first pilot of Star Trek, the original series, which uh, is an incarnation of the show that didn't get picked up, that didn't feature Captain Kirk and really any of the other cast members, there is booze on that spaceship. And they are always drinking anytime they go into any kind of space dock, any kind of port. And this is how we get introduced to other alien cultures is through the presence of their booze on the ship. We don't necessarily meet a Saurian, but we all know all about Saurian brandy as being the best type of brandy that is available in the whole galaxy. So yeah, booze has been there right from the start. So it was not maybe uh, that much of a surprise that when Roddenberry gets a chance to make a second Star Trek show, he just puts a bar on the ship. Yeah. And I think it is interesting too, the way that this perfect vision of the future would, you know, involve getting rid of all of the societal harm that can be done by alcohol, right? And also there's like a really big bar fight in an original series episode. It involves the Klingons, no surprise there. And, you know, to see that that like the, the vision of, okay, less animal products and, and no alcohol is like the ideal, but really in the late 80s, uh, early 90s with that generation of shows, you just can't, we're not ready to abandon that yet, particularly all the fun scenes that happen with drinks. And and I think the original series did such a fun job. Drinks on screen in that show were such absurdly bright colors that they became iconic because visually you could not miss them. Which is interesting because it seems where the bright blue, I think that's the Romulan ales, the bright blue ale, yeah, where it becomes an icon of kind of the potables of the Star Trek universe. Um, whereas, you know, Glenn, you were mentioning the the brightly colored cubes and really who knows what they are, fade off into the background in later incarnations of the show. And I find that really interesting because, as you were mentioning, you know, when we move to the next generation, even to Deep Space Nine, and I think even you see touches of this in Voyager, the food of humanity actually is quite familiar. We move away from these kind of unrecognizable cubes to 
Earl Grey tea, jambalaya and gumbo. Um, you know, you have chocolate sundaes, the beloved of Deanna Troy. Even Captain Janeway is basically just taking black coffee. Things we would recognize and, and most of us kind of know as food today. Whereas, you know, the drinks still kind of remain in this, this other kind of bright blue, very unusual, have all kinds of either they're, they're triple the strength of Scott, they can kind of ignite <laughs> at whim. You have to serve them warm, all these other kinds of things. But I mean, I think you were touching on this earlier, Valerie, about this perhaps comparative nature of other non-humans' food cultures that are in many ways a way of showing this otherness in comparison to humanity, um, whereas the human food remains very, in some ways, 20th century. The other food that kind of manifests of kind of representing the Klingons or, I mean, we can get into discovering even the alternate world that is the Terran Empire and showing them as other by what they consume and who they consume, I think is really interesting. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that element if we show an, a, a culture or a non-human species as alien by what they eat. Yeah, Trek really likes, there's an interesting tension in Trek between like the diversity of cultures that we see on on Earth as we know it today and the cultural importance of food and, and our ties to it. And then the kind of way that Trek likes to make a monoculture, right? That we have entire planets that speak one language and then we have, you know, an entire planet that drinks blood wine and, and eats, you know, raw meat. But I think that often the food and beverages are, are indications of kind of primary characteristics of, of another species um, or race. So like Klingons, right? They're a bloodthirsty, war-driven people. So they eat raw meat, right? I think that what is being consumed by other cultures both often serves as a point of contrast to humans, whether something to aspire to, but often, you know, a way that another species is is lacking in something that, that humans uniquely have. Um, but it often is a way of just defining very quickly what another alien race is like. And it's not, it's not even just what they eat. Sometimes it's even how they eat. So a big part of Star Trek Enterprise is about the fact that the Vulcans are vegetarian, but there are also a lot of laughs about the fact that the Vulcan character on the ship will not, absolutely not under any circumstances, touch food with her hands. And this is a way of of, of building the character of the Vulcan culture as uh, not only these, these peace-loving people and not extremely nonviolent people, but also uh, fastidious and, and clean. And we do then see this, uh, as Laura suggested, in Star Trek Discovery as well, where we've had a number of episodes in the, the Star Trek Mirror Universe, which is this parallel universe in which everything is back and so the Federation is not good and this utopia anymore. It is, in fact, bad. It is it is humans not at their best. It's humans at their, their worst. And one of the things that we learn right away when we are in the mirror universe in Discovery about humans is that uh, not only are they uh, enslaving alien people when they find them, they are also consuming them, that they are uh, doing something that we would think of as, as cannibalism. And this is just a real shorthand way for the writers to tell us exactly how evil, how awful the, the humans are in this mirror universe. And this is a, this is just a great way to, to build your speculative fiction world. You know, I think this it, it does often come back to cultural tension and what we're learning about humanity and how other people see us and how we see ourselves, because the mirror universe characters view the um, prime universe characters as weak and, you know, Klingons who also consume all of this raw meat, they also view humans as weak in a lot of ways, right? And then Vulcans, they're above that. They're more sophisticated and, and humans are somewhere in the middle. But I think it does tie tie into it in, in that way of it being insulting to us um, and dainty that we don't engage in these practices. And what I've found interesting about the various developments and incarnations of Star Trek, even though, say, like the original series had a bit of food, it was not a food focused show whatsoever. You had these brightly colored kind of alcoholic drinks, perhaps. And then you have the introduction of 
Guinan um, and Ten Forward and a lot more character development through food that you learn of people's food likes, dislikes, Picard's family, like winery and estate. Um, you even get that more in Cisco's family with New Orleans running a restaurant, but that, of course, entirely uh, distinct from Quark's bar that everyone is hanging out at all the time for good or for ill. And they're still relying on these replicators and whatnot. And it feels at that point that the the technology or the explanation behind that technology has kind of already been done and dusted. And, and we get little bits of, okay, well, we still like going to a bar. We like going to a restaurant or things like that. And then in Voyager, you actually have the introduction, though, of a main character who I think his actual formal title is like, like Chief Morale Officer or something along the lines, like Wellness Booster. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. Oh, gosh, we have to talk about Neelix now. Yeah, we do. We do. He's the cook. <laughs> He's the cook. I can't have an episode on food of Star Trek without at least talking about Neelix. So I'm going to have to force Neelix into this conversation. He would appreciate that. I mean, the point I'm kind of getting to is that it seems like with every later incarnation of Trek, you know, whatever time at which it occurs in the Trek universe, there's actually more of a focus, it seems, on food. Uh, this goes back to the question you asked earlier, Laura, about sort of the, the, the just really the trajectory of food. As the a new team of writers are spinning off Deep Space Nine and Voyager from Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Gene Roddenberry had passed away at this point and wasn't involved in the, the creation of either of those shows, the the two groups of writers who are developing these shows both come up with different ways in which they're going to backtrack from the fact that food just magically appears. Any food we want, whenever we want. If you just want to eat chocolate ice cream all day and be healthy, you can do that because the replicator will make you chocolate ice cream that has all the nutrition and none of the fat that your body uh, requires or does not require. And in for Deep Space Nine, this is handled by putting that show on a frontier, uh, on a space station orbiting or near a planet that is not a member of the Federation and doesn't have this replicator technology. And so we have Quark's bar on the station, which does have a replicator. The station has replicators. But Deep Space Nine also has a, a Klingon restaurant, a Klingon who cooks food for people and has Bajorans who do not have access to, to replicators who are um, basically running food trucks, offering street food on the, the what's called the promenade on the station, offering things like like Jumja sticks and, uh, and, and other types of food. And then the other show that is simultaneously developed is Voyager, which envisions this Federation ship that is stranded 70,000 light years from home and, and it, which will take them 70 years to get back. And there are other constraints, which are that they don't have as much uh, power as they as they would have if they were near home, and so they cannot rely on the replicators and are going to have to find ways to get real food. This is a great writing choice in terms of being able to create stories that are all about, we need to go to this planet in order to get Leola roots so that we can actually all eat next week. Um, also, we get great plots where the, the captain who uh, uh, has a coffee addiction that may in fact rival my own, or at least come close to it, sometimes makes some dangerous decisions decisions just because there might be coffee in that nebula or on that planet. So in both of these cases where we see the, the writers sort of taking one step further from Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future are going back to the ways that food is a part of who we are, uh, not just uh, uh, to develop our characters, but to to, to drive plots, but also to use food, and especially on Voyager, as a way of showing us how people build community. Because we've, we on Voyager, when we don't have these replicators, people have to go to the galley and get food that someone they know has made for them, uh, whose sole job, or at least most important job, is to be making that food and has assistants who are doing that. People are taking turns on what uh, in the army we called kitchen patrol, right? Helping out making the food. And the major theme of Star Trek Voyager actually is family and how these people, through their hardships, become a family together. And it is sharing these meals is a massive part of that. Yeah, there are so many wonderful veins in this. And, you know, Laura, you keep bringing up quarks and we keep not saying anything about it. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to go there. There's a reason we're not saying anything about it. Um, it's, Glenn and I have many off air conversations about, OK, so what's actually happening at quarks? Because sometimes they're making a drink, like mixing alcohol the way you might imagine it to be. Sometimes they're replicating it. Also, they're charging money for it. So then we have we have to get into the how does, you know, the space economy work problem. And so 
Quarks creates all of these questions that we just let go because we love scenes at Quarks. Um, So I don't know if there really is an answer to what's going on there other than that being on Deep Space Nine, being on that space station, you are interacting with other cultures who might prefer products that maybe you don't have in stock, so you would replicate them, and who also do still use currency. And so that creates some additional some additional complications. You know, we are also avoiding talking about Neelix as well. <laughs> um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that food is often a way of othering people. And even with Neelix, who is supposed to be a lovable character, I don't know if I quite agree with that, but I think that's how he's envisioned, is very much so othered by his weird food, right? Like the angel hair pasta is actually some sort of vegetable that grows hair and nobody wants to eat it because it's gross hair and nobody likes his weird coffee replacement um, and they just have to kind of get used to it but it's a constant way of othering Neelix through his odd food choices and the weird thing that he's trying to serve them while also letting Neelix play this role of building community and and kind of trying to throw off all of the hate that is being sent sent his way but you know, you also asked this other question of like, do we become more interested in food with every iteration of Trek? And, you know, it makes me think about how every iteration of Trek really does try to tackle the most pressing contemporary social issues of the day. And we have, as a culture, increasingly become preoccupied with food, particularly, oh, this thing says you should eat six small snacks every three hours and then you'll be the healthiest person. Or, you know, my grandma will call me and say, oh, the news told me peanut butter is terrible for you. Stop eating it. You know, and then, you know, a week later, oh, this peanut butter's back. Are you eating peanut butter? I sent you some peanut butter. Even thinking, you know, uh, now as, as also a recovering academic in a mental health profession, something that is being argued to be entered into the diagnostic manual for mental health disorders, kind of in an eating disorder realm, is something called orthorexia, which is a preoccupation with clean, healthy eating, which we see kind of everywhere in our culture right now. So I would hazard a guess that the the increasing role of food in Trek parallels our increasing obsession with nutritional perfection. We even see Tilly often in the new show Discovery saying things like, don't eat that. That's not going to give you the best nutrition uh, for what you need to do. And, and so I see parallels there to how our own society has been developing and what we're worried about right now. Yeah, you can see the parallels where in the 1960s and the 1980s, so the Star Trek, the original series, and Star Trek, the next generation, this idea that that science and engineering are going to solve our resource problems and that the people of the future, even the people of our very near future, decades from now, we're all going to be getting our food out of the freezer, right? We're going to be, we're microwaving TV dinners and eating those. And it's amazing that we can solve some problems of scarcity or we can reduce scarcity by being able to synthetically produce foods and keep foods fresh for long and uh, make food that can live in your freezer for years and still come out and taste, you know, palatable enough to, <laughs> to eat, at least on a Wednesday night, you know, in front of the TV. But as our own culture has actually shifted away from that and has said, actually, it turns out that eating fresh food, food that is actually food, is what's good for you. We have seen that mirrored, I think, in Star Trek as as well. So that's, a, that's a great observation. I'm interested then how you see the the automat in the discovery. I mean, do you see this as almost a kind of an in-between attempted solution between what we were talking about before of how do you technically or scientifically solve the issue of how to feed people when you're on a spaceship versus perhaps this 21st century move away from perhaps the the joys and glories and kind of allure that perhaps the replicator or the synthesizer had in parallel to, as you were saying, kind of like the rise of the microwave or the science is going to solve it all for us in terms of food culture. Do you think that automat, and I mean, I'm not even sure how that automat on discovery works um, <laughs> or what it's supposed to be doing, essentially, um, if there's a cook back there, if it's all just being replicated or synthesized, I'm not really sure. Do you, do you guys have a better better insight into this than I do? Yeah, I, I, so I'm not totally sure how, how it works either. But I will say that Discovery has put itself in a tricky position where often... What Discovery is trying to do is like not screw up the timeline and not mess up canon. So the original series, which aired in the 60s, takes place in the 2260s. And Discovery, which is airing now, 
takes place 10 years before that in the 2250s. And then there was another show that was on in the early 2000s that takes place in the 2150s, 100 years before all of that. Right. So we have this complicated timeline. But on on the show that takes place in the 2150s, there's a chef. Some things are being resequenced, but you get this almost like a vending machine situation where you're, you're pulling something like someone behind the scenes has put a plate and then you pull up the window on the other side and you get the plate and you sit in the mess hall. The Discovery aesthetic, even though they're using um, food sequencers, I I believe, looks like that. It looks like this thing from 100 years ago aesthetically a little bit. And so to me, it feels like they're just trying to say, okay, we're giving you something that somewhat resembles where this show and its technology ought to land in the timeline of Star Trek shows that we have confused ourselves with. Like, and and we're just going to wave our hands and the rest is magic. So just like, it looks up to snuff. Stop arguing about canon, please, internet. And here's a fun joke about a burrito. And I mean, I think that's a really, really astute observation. And and one I hadn't really thought about too deeply of the, of the visual and kind of almost technological mirroring of, all right, if this is the 50s of the future, that is going to also be a prequel to what was made in the 60s, in the 1960s. And the automat, of course, famous 1950s, 1960s. I think that that is an interesting kind of both trying to keep to the Star Trek canon, all right, we're in a pre-replicator, kind of mess hall, kind of chef, but also here's a a visual throwback to an actual technology that was very popular in the decade prior to when the original series was actually being filmed. Yeah, I think the next Trek show we're going to get is just going to be a make-your-own-salad bar in space. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you heard it here first, folks. I can say if you had to try one food from from all of the incarnations of Star Trek, what what would you love to love to at least have a, a bite of? I'm going to be incredibly predictable um, and uh, and problematically just be another female character that loves chocolate. I want to know what that that nutritionally dense, fat free chocolate ice cream sundae that Troy likes to eat tastes like. Though I, I really. I really bemoan that it took away from her character development, but I think in the future I will still be getting anything chocolate I can get my hands on. I think it uh, nicely mirrors kind of the alcohol element that, you know, if alcohol is eternal, apparently chocolate is eternal as well, <laughs> that no matter what. Right. Yeah. <laughs> my day is not done without a square of chocolate before bed. So uh, I have a problem and I, I it's okay. I can admit it. I have I have for decades now been yearning to try a Bajoran Jumja stick, which is this street food uh, kind of popsicle looking thing that is offered on the promenade of Deep Space Nine. And Miles O'Brien, who's the chief engineer of the station, develops a, a, a real unhealthy habit of eating them all the time, especially when his wife is away for work. So it just indicates to me that it is something that I, too, would would like to eat. Basically, if Miles O'Brien likes it, I probably like it. <laughs> I do aspire to be cool enough to get an assignment on a Klingon and fit in and eat all the the food, you know, and pretend to like it and slam my blood wine on the table. But um, I'm going to have to work my way up to that. <laughs> I will say that, you know, if we're looking for foods that we can't actually have right now, like chocolate ice cream, which I'm about to go eat some of, of course, I would actually be pretty interested in Plomeek soup, which is like a Vulcan vegetarian broth of some sort that gets brought up a lot. So I- I'd love to know if that is somehow better than any vegetarian like veggie broth that you can buy nowadays, which are all pretty awful. Okay, and then I will ask the alcohol that you would love to to try, and maybe even a a, a drinking partner from Star Trek. So you can kind of mix and match alcohol and from all of Trek, your uh, preferred drinking partner for a shot or a glass or a stein of something. I would 100% just ask Guinan to make me whatever she thought was good. And I would drink it, whatever it was. But I actually, I would love to try Romulan ale because that's something that I can't quite picture anything about what it would be like. Now, if you're not up on your Star Trek alcohols, allow me to summarize briefly. Romulan ale is a strong very strong alcohol that comes to us from the planet Romulus. Absolutely bright, vibrant blue in color, it is not, as you might expect from the name ale, a nice low-octane beer, 
but rather something more in the family of Everclear. Although it was long banned by the Federation thanks to some ongoing tiff with the Romulans, everyone from Captain Kirk to Lieutenant Worf seemed to have a bottle of the stuff stashed away somewhere in their quarters. Fun fact, its iconic blue color on screen was apparently created by a stellar, see what I did there, combination of Glacier Freeze flavored Gatorade and carbonated water. Anyway, Back to Valor. And it has, has a special place in my heart because Glenn and I actually started making cocktails together when uh, he was making drinks for friends and asked me to make a blue syrup that he could put in his Romulan Ale Star Trek drink. Um, and that's how we kind of began teaming up in that venture. So I would have a Romulan Ale with Guinan. Yeah, you know, as 10 Forward, the, the bar on the Next Generation Starship Enterprise is the first bar I ever experienced. And so it has a, a warm place, a fond place in my heart. But I'm a real lover of hard-boiled detective stories. And Quark is a sort of notorious gangster character who happens also to run a legitimate bar, really just to, I think, launder money from his criminal enterprises. And so I have long dreamed of just going to Quark's and uh, taking a bar stool there and maybe next to Miles O'Brien and uh, ordering uh, a glass of Cardassian Canar, which is their uh, their sort of cultural um, high proof alcohol. We don't really ever quite know what it tastes like. It comes in very cool, uh, twisted looking bottles, though. I would love to have uh, one of those bottles. Sometimes it's also blue. Sometimes it's green. I think we're given to understand that it's maybe more of a family of types of alcohols than is than one specific thing. But that's the dream of, of my future in space. I think if anything, we learn through the incarnations of Trek alcohol that apparently humans just aren't great drinkers, that we have come up with remarkably weak alcohol in comparison to every <laughs> other species. Right. Weak alcohol and boring bottles. Like that's what people think of humans in the future. I have to know, perhaps if you, you remember, what was in the, the, the blue-making Romulan ale? What was in the syrup that you made? Oh, oh, how dare you ask? Or is that a secret? What a great question. I wish I could remember what I did. I have very vivid memories that it was incredibly difficult to produce a, a natural blue that stayed blue when you mixed it with other stuff in a drink. I remember I tried blueberries. I think I put kale in something. <laughs> like, yeah, so you did have a lot of trouble with this. I mean, making something that was going to be blue and stay blue when we put other stuff in it was nigh impossible. So the drink's an ounce and a half of gin. It's half an ounce of the syrup that you made and then like a, a quarter ounce of uh, the Canton um, ginger liqueur. But I don't remember what the syrup was. But you did yeah i don't remember what you did but it worked it stayed blue so <laughs> um yeah i think it was actually was in the end you know i mentioned using kale it was cabbage if you take red cabbage and mix it with baking soda there's some chemistry that happens and you get a pretty bright blue the blueberries were pale and, and took you more down the purple road now as soon as valerie mentioned that they created a blue syrup for romulan ale through the mystical process of combining red cabbage and baking soda I knew I had to try it for myself. Turns out red cabbage has been a go-to natural source of blue food coloring for a long time. And according to the internet, it all comes down to pigments known as anthocyanins, which are found in things like blueberries, black soybeans, and of course, red cabbage. And apparently these pigments are a bit unstable. Once you introduce enough acid to them, baking soda, or lemon juice, you can get them to turn different shades of blue, purple, or red. So take a red cabbage, chop it up a bit, throw it in some water and boil it, and after you wait, say, 20 minutes or so, eventually those reddish pigments from the cabbage will leach into the boiling water. If you take that water and add some baking soda to it, little by little, you will get blue. Of course, this depends on the strength of your cabbage and the strength of your baking soda. You might have to add slightly more or less baking soda to get exactly the color of blue you want. It goes without saying that once you have the blue syrup, you have to add that blue to a simple syrup, basically boiled sugar and water together, to get the ingredient Glenn and Valerie used, along with gin and ginger-flavored liqueur, to get their version of a true Romulan ale. 
So we were conducting this very serious scientific research a few weeks back, and we discovered essentially that someone apparently has already invented real Romulan ale. Well, it doesn't go by that name, of course. The good folks over at Empress 1908 Gin in British Columbia and Canada have added the ingredient of butterfly pea flower, which is naturally blue, to their gin, which turns it a vibrant blue or indigo color. So if you don't feel like going down the red cabbage and baking soda road, or if you're not into mixing drinks, you can just have a small glass of Empress 1908 gin and imagine yourself on the Enterprise and tend forward with Guinan. You can even add a touch of tonic water and watch the gin turn a light purple or even dusty pink. Thanks, anthocyanins. And if that doesn't look like a drink from outer space, I don't know what does. You can check out our experiments with both the red cabbage and baking soda as well as the blue pea flower gin on our Instagram at feast underscore podcast. Well, this is this really has been one of the challenges of making making cocktails for our podcast is that we want to anytime these uh, these really colorful drinks appear on screen, we jump on that as the thing that we're going to turn into our own cocktail. But it's hard to get those colors right, because all of the things that we all of our liquors that we want to mix with uh, start to make everything brown or shades of brown after a while. So it is difficult to make blue drinks, green drinks, pink drinks uh, that also are something you would want to consume. But something was successful in the end. It sounds like it was. I, I Yes, yes. And so I can't wait for us to encounter all these species uh, in real life so we can have these colorful drinks. But I mean, I have to ask, of course, the the cocktail perhaps um, that I am intrigued by is you're taking inspiration from I'm going to I'm going to lay my cards out on the table. Um, my favorite captain, Jean-Luc Picard. And, and you do have a cocktail in his honor. We do indeed. And uh, of course, Captain Picard is, I think, most famous for really, really loving uh, tea, Earl Grey, hot tea, Earl Grey, hot. So we have uh, we have made an Earl Grey infused gin, which is a, a real easy thing to do. You just steep some Earl Grey tea bags in some gin. You can uh, steep it as long as you like. You can do it to taste. I really love the heck out of bergamot, so I steep it until it's basically black. And you use uh, two parts of this Earl Grey gin, and then uh, three quarters of a part of Lillet, which is a, a French uh, white wine aperitif. And this is how we are getting some some sort of French wine product in here in honor of Chateau Picard. And then use a, a quarter part of Suze, which is a, another French liqueur. This is a, an herbal liqueur from the, the the French Alps that has a real sweetness. It's a, it's actually more really more of a floral liqueur than an herbal liqueur. You combine those ingredients in a uh, cocktail shaker, though you're going to stir this drink with quite a bit of ice. You want this to be very, very cold. It's really a martini that we're making here. Uh, you'll stir that and then strain that into ideally a chilled martini glass, and then you will uh, garnish it with a lemon twist. Oh, it sounds elegant, just like Picard. And of course, using some of famous love of tea. I think that that is, that is brilliant. I mean, I have to thank you both so much. And this has been a great time. This is I love listening to Lower Decks, I got to say. It's been an absolute delight to, to come on the show, Laura, and uh, talk about food. And I think probably especially talk about booze and share some of our, our cocktails with you. Uh, and of course, Star Trek Discovery is still on the air. Its second season is still on the air right now. And we hope people will uh, will check it out and uh, uh, come hang out with us uh, on the Lower Decks and uh, join the speakeasy that we run in the Jeffries Tubes. And if you're interested in that recipe or any of the cocktail recipes that we create for the show, they are available um, on a thread on our forums at claytemplemedia.com. Valerie and Glenn's podcast, Lower Decks, releases every week, just after each new episode of Star Trek Discovery. They also do some amazing recaps of older Star Trek episodes. I just listened to one from Deep Space Nine, featuring a Star Trek homage to James Bond. Absolutely worth a listen. Glenn also can be found on a bunch of other podcasts, including as the host of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, which is about the infamous science fiction writer who also just happened to invent the machine that makes Pringles. Yes, you heard that right. 
And as far as Valerie is concerned, as she mentioned at the top of the show, she is also the curator of the Plants of Star Trek Instagram feed, which is exactly the sort of greenery you need in your life, especially now at the very last gasp of winter. You can find links to all these great things, especially the cocktail recipes, on our show notes for this episode or on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. Remember, you can follow along with all the updates from The Feast on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at feast underscore podcast. You can also sign up for our newsletter on our website, where we also happen to have a fun online store with Feast t-shirts and other merchandise for those nerdy food historians in your life. And if you'd like, you can also support the show by donating via Patreon or via our website. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with sound design and editing by Mike Port. Once again, a huge thanks to Glenn and Valerie for being on the show with me today and talking Trek. And I have them on record that, should they make their way back to Toronto, we're doing a Star Trek-themed pub crawl of all the filming locations for Star Trek Discovery. Oh yes. And I'll make sure to have some Romulan ale ready for them. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, we'll be releasing episodes weekly this season. So you can expect another delicious meal that made history in your feed next Tuesday. Until then, I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.